the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Good morning, Cleveland, home of the smartest, strongest, fastest, toughest, and best-looking people in America. You're listening to Always Right on Salem 1420 WHK. It's not Bob France. It's Pete Kersenow substituting for Bob France this 10th day of March 2023. 2023, incredible. It is, once again, a titanic privilege to be here talking with all of you once again. And we've got a country to save, as Larry Elder, our buddy, says. And we have to save it from what we've seen to be, at least in my lifetime, this titanic corruption, decay, dysfunction imposed on us, imposed on this country by an almost unimaginably incompetent, corrupt, dysfunctional government. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. I'm not sure you have either. But it's also not just the government. Our major institutions, from our entire educational establishment, the news media, entertainment media, Hollywood, music, you name it, big business, and, unfortunately, it's growing, and most ominously, our Biden DOJ the FBI, which apparently believes Catholics are terrorists, uh, this is a problem. 
And we're going to save the country today from all of that. Bob is emceeing Bringing America Back to Life again. Uh, it seems he does so every year. I know he did so last year. I've had the privilege of speaking there a couple of times. And it's one of, no, it is the largest gathering outside of the March for Life in the country of pro-lifers. It's the most important pro-life event in terms of it being a seminar and having speakers and knowledge and events that uh, promote the pro-life movement. Incredibly, uh, incredibly important. We have a lot to talk about today, especially with you, the listeners, but also with our guests. And I'll tell you who they are. At the bottom of this hour, we'll be talking to Matt Sharp of Alliance Defending Freedom regarding the case involving high school girls competing against boys who are transgender. They are track athletes. We've uh, talked to Alliance Defending Freedom in the past about this issue. The matter is currently on appeal before the Second Circuit. Incredibly important case. Then... At 1010, we're going to talk to John Stover of Ohio Valley Voters about SB1, Senate Bill 1. That would do a number of things. Among them, put the governor in greater control of education and reducing the role of the State Board of Education. But there's a number of other aspects to it. John has been immersed in this. He testified before the General Assembly regarding this and uh, would like to get his perspective. My understanding is the Ohio Valley's voters uh, would not be in favor of passing SB1 unless there were several amendments, and I hope to talk to him about that. And then at 10.30, we have former Senate candidate and Ohio businessman Bernie Marino. We're going to be talking to him about all things Ohio. We've got a lot of things going on in Ohio, as you know. I just mentioned one of them. But uh, it always seems we're on the cusp of another momentous election, and we do. We've got another election coming up. And I'd like to get the sense of the listeners as to we've got – um, Sherrod Brown is one of our senators. He is a Democrat in a plus eight red state. And this is going to be a pivotal election for all of us, but for him especially, because he's had the luxury of running in uh, years when things favored Democrats. And I'm not going to, uh, you know, uh, diminish his political acumen. He has won. He has won several times. But I think that in a state like Ohio, uh, his continued viability as a senator remains in doubt. And the question is, who should run against him? And I'd like to get your perspective on what you're looking for. What are our listeners looking for in terms of a Senate candidate? So we have Bernie Marino at 1030, but the rest of the time is for you. That is from 11 to 11.45, it will be Open Line Friday, and I want to take your calls. And we may be able to take some calls in between the various guests also. So please listen in, and if you hear me say go, call in. Please call in. I love talking to our listeners about any topic you want to talk about. We've got so many things, so many. Uh, a few weeks ago, I guest hosted, and we had a power Problem and unfortunately couldn't have open line Friday as I had anticipated. So you were subjected to nearly three hours of bloviation by yours truly. Today, though, from 11 to 11.45, we're going to be guest-free. That's 11. 11.45 is open line Friday, reserved specifically for you. Anything you want to talk about, you name it. January 6th tapes being shown by Tucker Carlson. The utter catastrophe, which cannot be overstated, at the southern and now northern border. 
By the way, um, in the new budget that Biden has come up with, which generally blows the doors off of any kind of spending restraint to the extent there are any doors remaining, he has 87,000, as you know, 87,000 IRS agents, but only 300 border agents. That needs to be flipped around. In fact, I would eliminate 300 uh, IRS agents and add 87,000 border agents. What say you? They've got things completely reversed. I just saw this morning that in New York they're sending illegal immigrants to college. To college. Thousands of them. Free board, free tuition, everything. This is incredible. You've got to work hard. You've got to play by the rules. You've got to pay the taxes that are then given to people who break our laws and come here and get a free education. Astonishing. What is going on here? Up is down. Black is white. This is, this is extraordinary. We should be angry. Not just sitting by idly. Not just saying, oh my goodness, this is bad. Not making just polite commentary here or there. We should be angry. We should be motivated. We should vote our interest. Vote the American interest, not foreigners' interests. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Nothing whatsoever. Now, what we have here is catastrophe in public education, as I've mentioned before, but we're allowing illegal immigrants to come in and take advantage of our best resources. We don't have a public education system in many areas now. We've got a public indoctrination system. Um, Think about certain school districts. I I like to focus on Baltimore at the Civil Rights Commission. By the way, I haven't sufficiently introduced myself. I'm Bob's Tuesday guest on a regular basis. For those of you who who listen on a regular basis, I'm a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I'm a lawyer, blah, 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 all those good things. I'm also an author. Last book came out a couple of months ago doing extremely well called The Devil's Weapons, where I... Uh, ghostwrite for the great author W.B. Griffin, who died a few years back. He had about 30, literally 30, New York Times bestsellers. They've asked me to continue a series. I was privileged to do so. I've got another one of those books coming out uh, shortly, and I've got a book coming out in uh, the summer, and I've got even another one in the queue. So please go and buy my books. Let my granddaughter's tuitions be paid. Um, but we focus at the Civil Rights Commission on a number of issues, including education, and one of the cities that we look at very often is Baltimore. It's just right down the street from the Civil Rights Commission in Washington, D.C. In Baltimore, 65% of students, 65% cannot read at grade level. In 16 schools, 16 high schools in Baltimore, no one, not a single student, is proficient in math. Think about that. And we're sending illegal immigrants to college on your dime. We might be 36th in the world in math, and it appears we do lead the world in teaching and assisting children without their parents' knowledge how to lop off body parts in an evil, dangerous, and ultimately futile attempt to change their bodies. We have a culture that lower standards, it's celebrating decadence and dis- dysfunction to a degree that it makes the Weimar Republic look like Victorian England in comparison. In the last few years, we've seen the wages of such dysfunction. You know, we're dumbing down every standard, eliminating SATs. They're eliminating SATs in most prestigious schools and they're doing it so they can discriminate on the basis of race. They're getting rid of other standardized tests, lowering almost every standard 
in every profession. We're tolerating crime, destruction, and perversion, and indeed even excusing and celebrating those things. Victor Davis Hanson, if you listened to Bob's show on Tuesday, I made mention of this, and I don't want to bore you, but Victor Davis Hanson, who all of you know, and I had the privilege of serving on the 1776 Commission, wrote an article. He writes so many good articles, and I don't know how he does it. I mean, he's just so prolific. But I think it was on Tuesday he wrote an article about he's a historian, and he compared our current era with the Byzantine republics and Roman uh, republics and the deterioration of same and the things that led up to the deterioration and how we are emulating those things. Uh, as he said, the defecation, urination, and fornication in our streets, which is actually going on. We are tolerating this in the greatest nation in the history of the world. Once you tolerate that, there's an inevitable decline, which is very difficult to reverse. And we're doing everything, meaning the Democratic Party and the media, but I repeat myself, to put their feet on the pedal and accelerate the decline. They're celebrating dysfunction. They actually celebrate it. Watch them. It's amazing. They're pouring, pouring gas on the fire. And our so-called elite, and I mentioned this the last time I was here, but it bears repeating every single time we can. The elite, those at the top levels of almost every endeavor, the so-called elite today are anything but. Not everybody. We've got some very splendid people in certain places. But the whole cohort much of the cohort of the so-called elite is anything but. Never have our elite classes been as ignorant, unskilled, unimpressive, and frankly idiotic as they are today. We've lowered standards and this is the result. Yet they have the gall to tell us that America, that is we, that we are and always have been racist, sexist, homophobic, transgender, and utterly unworthy of protecting and defending. There go, ergo, bring in a bunch of illegal aliens, give them free college educations on our dime, because we're such idiots, we'll just fork over our tax dollars, and now they want to hire 87,000 IRS agents to get even more for illegal aliens. The Biden administration is Exhibit A in decline. Not just the astonishingly incompetent and embarrassing president, and Kamala Harris, but cabinet individuals who are chosen not because of their expertise or any kind of merit, but because they check boxes. Look at Jennifer Granholm in energy. has no clue about how to do energy policy whatsoever. Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg has no clue what he's doing in transportation. Witness East Palestine. Witness the debacles with respect to airline travel. Witness the supply chain uh, problems that we had last year and are continuing. Look at Lloyd Austin. Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. All I have to say about that is Afghanistan. How about Anthony Blinken? Oh, Anthony Bl- boy, our Secretary of State. Boy, he really outmaneuvers the Chinese, doesn't he? That guy is so sharp. He went to all the right schools. He must be really smart. What a clown. Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary. You think things are going well in the Treasury? How do you like inflation right now? How about that? But they check boxes. Then, how about Mayor Garland, my favorite, our attorney general, who sicks the FBI on parents because they dare go to school board meetings. That Probably the worst, by the way, is Alejandro Mayorkas, to whom I've sent a number of letters demanding all kinds of things as a civil rights commissioner, head of DHS, 
head of DHS, just take a look at our borders. In any event, I'm going to be discussing a little bit more of that. There's a lot for me to bloviate about, a lot of me to rant about. I could rant for hours and hours. I'm sure you could, too, because we are being disserved by the incompetence that, unfortunately, we have permitted to be in these places. But have we permitted it? Or is this the result of massive amount of lies that have caused a number of well-meaning people to vote a certain way or turn a blind eye? We'll discuss that and a lot more coming up on Always Right. We're going to be looking forward to your calls from 11 to 11.45. This is Pete Kersnow substituting for Bob France. Good morning, Cleveland. Born to be wild. You know, Kirsten is at the helm because of the bumper music. We're going to be joined by guests shortly, and we're going to have 11 to 11.45. is going to be completely guest-free, so it's open for your phone calls. I see John from Chardon try to jump in line here. He wants to get in before our first guest, and we're going to allow him to do so because he's going to be talking about Biden. John, how you doing? Good morning, Pete. Doing good. Hey, uh, I, I don't know if you back in the day you watched Seinfeld. Of course. You know, the comedy. Yeah. And um, Dan Bongino pointed this out, so I want to give credit where credit's due. But uh, if he's talking to his friend George Costanza, Seinfeld is, and his friend George says, you know, I feel like a loser. And Seinfeld says, well, George, if you did everything the opposite of what you're doing, <laughs> you'd be a winner. I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, that's the perfect analogy for our president. Exactly. President. Exactly. Doing yeah. the exact opposite would be, well, he's doing the exact opposite of what Trump did. And everything has gone downhill. Everything has gone downhill. You name it. You know, I still look Indeed. at it. I go past a gas station. They don't talk about it anymore. But the gas prices, I still remember filling up my tank the day before his inauguration, Biden's inauguration, and it was two eighteen a gallon. And now when I go past my gas station where I usually fill up, it's at 3.30 or 3.33, I think it is. This is nuts. And we're tolerating this. We've gotten used to, we're being acclimated to mediocrity. No, not on our watch. We have to resist this. We don't allow the lying media. And we'll talk about it at 11 to 11.45, how the media has lied to us about so many things. Every single big item that they told us, and they, they remonstrated us saying, you can't say the opposite. Remember, you can't say this about COVID. You can't say this about Russia collusion. You can't say this about January 6th. And every single one of the events, every single one of the items that they told us about was absolutely false been revealed as such and now they say never mind they want to move on not happening folks i know we have some more people holding we're going to try to get to you we have a guest at the bottom of the hour matt sharp is going to be talking about transgender athletes please call back at 11 and we'll make sure we get you on i don't know that we're going to be able to get you on but if we have any kind of a break between guests we're going to try to do so get to our great guests Pete Kersnow, sitting in for Bob France, always right.
Waking Up America from its woke slumber. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Good morning, Cleveland. You can tell from the bumper music that Pete Kersenow is substituting for Bob France. Pete is getting stronger. It's not Beat is getting stronger. As you know, very often we've had guests from Alliance Defending Freedom whenever I've substituted for Bob because it's one of my favorite organizations. They're doing phenomenal work. And we've talked in the past about the case of a couple of female athletes. Well, it's more than a couple of female athletes, but there are female athletes in Connecticut who've had to compete against two transgender girls. I always get that mixed up. Despite the fact that I've been on the Civil Rights Commission for 22 years, we're on the cutting edge of these things. I can never remember what is It's a transgender girl. That is a boy who presents or claims to be a girl. And these uh, boys in Connecticut competed against phenomenal female athletes and destroyed every single record in the book, as you might imagine. The girls who were outstanding and were competing and doing well and hoping for scholarships and, frankly, accomplishments at the uh, high school level were defeated by these boys every single time. As you might expect, they were the boys were mediocre as boys. Uh, then when they competed against girls, as you might expect, they beat, because some of us here actually understand that there's a difference between boys and girls. But in any event, Matt Sharp is one of the attorneys for ADF, Reliance Defending Freedom, involved in the case Soul versus Connecticut, which we've been following for the last couple of years. Matt, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, we really appreciate it. We really appreciate the work that you're doing. The audience, or many in the audience, are familiar with some of the aspects of uh, Soul versus Connecticut. I've talked about it in the past, but the last time was, I think, geez, it must have been more than a year ago, so, you know, the memories need to be sharpened a little bit. Can you give us a little, I know that the case right now is up for, I think it's rehearing on bond, correct, before the Second Circuit? That's right. Okay. That's right, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, just a kind of capsulized summary, take your time, though, capsulized summary of what this case is about, the facts, the law, et cetera, and the posture of the case right now? Yeah. Several years ago, the Connecticut Athletic Conference uh, that oversees sports in the state passed a policy that said a guy can compete on a girl's team if he identifies as a girl. That's all it takes, just simply saying, I identify as a girl, and therefore he can compete. Well, we had several young athletes, uh, talented female athletes that Alliance Defending represents that started losing opportunities when two males began competing in women's track and field. And between these two males, they captured over 15 championships, over 17 records that previously belonged to women that they captured, and over 80 instances where those two guys took championships, medals, spots on the podium, or even opportunities to advance in competition away from our clients and other female athletes across Connecticut. And so our client stood up and said, this is wrong. It violates Title IX, which is meant to give equal opportunities to women in sports. And now here's men coming along, taking away those opportunities because of this bad Connecticut policy. So we've been challenging that, and that case has been moving through the system and unfortunately have had uh, some courts that are not very sympathetic to our clients. But we were very encouraged that uh, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals took this en banc. This is very rare that the entire Second Circuit takes a case. And we're hopeful that they're going to recognize that what's happened to our clients is wrong, that lost championships, lost opportunities are real harm, and allow our client's case to move forward. Matt, I'm a recovering litigator myself. Can you tell the audience how you view the decision by the Second Circuit to rehear this en banc? Does that signal? I know it's not definitive or anything, but it kind of signals, to me at least, 
that uh, maybe the lower court or whom you know the the uh, district court or the the second circuit that heard it maybe there's more to this than meets the eye yeah that's exactly right the the second circuit had essentially said look you know what's the harm that's happened to you young ladies um you weren't guaranteed a championship all of this but we know they were our clients were um and so when the second circuit on bonk on its own says we're going to give this a second look that's really encouraging to us. And again, this is not something we had asked for. This is just something the entire Second Circuit did on its own and something that rarely happens up there. So when you have a large group of judges like this that say, hey, we think there's something that may be wrong with what the court did. Uh, we think there may be something wrong with that decision. We think that's a good sign. Um, and we obviously don't know. We're in the process of briefing and, and looking forward to argument on that again entirely from the full court here in a few months. But I think it's an encouraging sign, and we're hopeful, again, that the court's going to recognize the real harm that was done to our clients by these lost opportunities and allow them to move forward with this case challenging Connecticut's awful policy. I think that the lay people listening to this are scratching their heads and are bewildered how this could even happen. Even if you don't have a familiarity with every jot and tittle of Title IX, the essence of it, people understand, is to prohibit sex discrimination in school programs that are funded by the federal government. And when they see sex discrimination, they think that, well, the purpose of Title IX is to provide opportunities for females to compete on their own merit. Otherwise, they'd be swamped by males. I mean, just it, it, the previous times that I've looked at this, I remember uh, looking at some commentary, and maybe it was one of your briefs, that uh, there were there were certain stats that were cited, like, so I, I'm a big track fan. I love track. Um, ran it in high school. And uh, Allison Felix is the fastest woman, at least in the 400 and sprints, in world history. Not just the fastest American, not just the, the fastest right now, but the fastest woman who's ever existed. The fastest woman who's ever existed. And yet right now there are at least 275 high school boys in the United States alone, in this era alone, who could obliterate her records. So it's fundamentally unfair, and it would compromise, in my estimation, the whole purpose behind Title IX if you permitted males, biological males, to compete against females. How does a court, how does a lower court, even come close to saying something like that? Yeah, I think it requires them to completely ignore what Title IX says, that it prohibits discrimination based on sex, that it requires equal, equal opportunity. It has to ignore precedent, including rulings from R- Justice Ruth G- Bader Ginsburg, who recognized that there are physiological differences between men and women. And so even in the opinion, this is the Virginia Military Institute, where the court said you have to allow women to en- enroll in the all-male Virginia Military Institute. Justice Ginsburg said, but nonetheless, you still recognize that there are physiological differences, and so therefore you have different standards, and you still have different dormitories and housing and other things, recognizing that our biological sex is written into every cell of our body, and it matters. And when we ignore that, women pay the price, and that's exactly what we're seeing happening in Connecticut and across the country is women are being denied opportunities, not just on the playing field, but this is impacting privacy in locker rooms and restrooms. It's impacting women's shelters. It's impacting so many things. When we ignore truth and say that a man is a woman simply because he declares it so, women pay the price. You made a good point there. It's, you know, it's occurring throughout the country, maybe not in, in great volume, but it does happen in discrete places from time to time, and we hear about it. And we heard about the Leah Thomas situation at the University of Pennsylvania where she just obliterated every record. It was just not even close, as you would expect. Because 
in a sane world, we understand that men are different from women, and simply because you say, hey, guess what, I think I'm a woman today, doesn't change the irreducible, irreducible biological fact that every single one of your cells has a chromosome in it that says you're a male. No matter what you try to do, and if some archaeologist a thousand years from now exhumes your corpse or what's left of it, they will see a skeleton and will say, that's a male right there, even if the remnants of deteriorated clothing uh, show that this person was buried in female garb. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think uh, one of the reasons why, I mean, I think making sure that we have fidelity to the law as written, making sure that we are rational in applying the law to the facts is so important. We can't allow a decision. What what amazes me, Matt, do you have any kind of opinion as to how it is that judges, who are not dumb, how judges can read Title IX and come to a conclusion other than yes, these boys should not have been competing against female athletes. How do they do that? What's the rationale? I think it's buying into the radical gender ideology. The very thing that's being pushed by the Biden administration, that was pushed by the Obama administration before them, is just that sex doesn't mean biology anymore. Sex means your gender identity. It means whatever you identify as. And if you accept that, then it allows for rewriting of Title IX. It allows for the insane interpretations that the Biden administration is sending out the schools across the country saying you must focus on gender identity. That's all that matters. So if a boy says he's a girl, you call him by girl pronouns. You allow him on girls' teams. You allow him in girls' locker rooms. And it takes buying into that ideology. And that's why we have to stand against it and recognize truth is still truth, and a man can never be a woman. Because if we take that to extreme, if you allow one guy, for example, on a girls' basketball team, then you have to accept that the entire team right. can now be men. And that means there will be no more opportunities for women, and the purpose of Title IX is lost. Right, exactly. You know, you can just imagine if LeBron James now decided that he's a woman, decided to compete in the WNBA or take almost any other field of endeavor, LeBron James was a complete dominate. You wouldn't even have to have four other teammates. You could have one other teammate, and they would win every NBA, WNBA title. Same would occur down the road with every other sport. This is not a reflection on females. It's a in a, you know, and whether or not they're so-called inferior. It's a recognition of biological reality and the necessity for preserving opportunities. For female athletes, what are some of the opportunities that are lost if your clients, for example, uh, or it won't be your clients now because of the litigation, you know, continuing for a period of time, wouldn't necessarily be affected by this right now. But for females in the future, what are the implications if the Second Circuit says, you know what, males can compete against females in what used to be reserved for uh, sports reserved for females alone? Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously know what happens on the playing field, that a girl's not going to get a spot on the team. She's not going to get a chance to win a championship. But let's go beyond that. There's going to be girls that lose scholarship because uh, a recruiter is going to say, who had the fastest time? And if it's a biological male, that's who they're going to recruit. That's who they're going to offer the scholarship to. There was another study that came out a few years ago talking about women CEOs at Fortune 500 companies, and it found that 94% of women CEOs, presidents, business leaders, had pay, played sports. 
and they talked about how vital it had been for them, how it taught them confidence and leadership and all of these skills, overcoming adversity. And if you're depriving young women of that opportunity on the playing field, you're impacting their future as business leaders, as shapers and movers in our country. So the consequence of this don't just end on the playing field. They carry over into college, into opportunities, into careers and beyond. Right. And if you look at some of the debates occurring uh, when Title IX was being implemented, uh, you look at legislative history, those points were made very often. Uh, I remember, because I'm you know, a dinosaur, when I was in high school, you didn't have these opportunities for females. And it was considered kind of peculiar when you had female track athletes. I remember at my high school, I think there were a few, but not many, because it was new back then. Again, back in the Mesozoic era when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, the opportunities now that are afforded to females, provided that it is relegated to females alone, are incredible and enormous. And, and just as you've indicated, you can highlight successful females today in business and science and all other fields of endeavors, and so many of them honed their, polit- their uh, uh, competitive instincts in sports. And now we're going to permit, all it takes is one or two males to completely obliterate opportunities for scores of females. Did you find that these two males, uh, and you alluded to this at the outset as to how many titles they took, but these two males, how many females do you think those two males affected in terms of opportunities, records, so on and so forth? Oh, it was, it was scores. And we know this wasn't just Connecticut because these two males were competing all throughout New England. They were capturing championships in Connecticut, New Hampshire, all throughout the Northeast. And so you just think of, of young women from Connecticut, from other states, that found themselves being pushed off the podium, that found themselves not advancing to the next round of the competition in these regional tournaments. Woman after woman, girl after girl, being denied opportunities simply because of two guys. And that's when people will say, what's the big deal? It's just one or two. Well, even one or two can completely upend the sport. All of those championships, all of those records that those young women woke up 5 a.m. trying, training, pushing their bodies, and all of those are now lost forever to them. And that matters to these young women, and that's why we are standing and fighting against this, because it is not right for these two males to take away all of these opportunities, all of these records, all of these things that matter and that those young women worked hard and deserve the recognition for. Right, and all of us who have daughters and granddaughters understand that and the pride we take in them when they achieve certain things on the playing field and that being deprived of them. And it's just astonishing that our so-called or some of our so-called elite would sit idly by and elevate a strange ideology that is fleeting, that's only been around for like uh, a blink of an eye in the course of human endeavor, allow this to deprive literally thousands of females of the opportunity to compete, to hone their instincts, to frankly enjoy themselves and have a sense of accomplishment. I think it's an abomination. I think it's a horror. I don't understand sometimes our legal profession that doesn't, doesn't have the ability to put aside ideology and look at the clear letter of the law. To me, and I recognize I'm retrograde, I'm a little bit of a dinosaur, but when I went to law school, you look at the law, you look at what the text says, and it's pretty clear what Title IX says, and it's pretty clear what the um, the purpose of Title IX, the, legislative, the, the, the impetus behind Title IX. Um, in terms of the, um, the actual original plaintiffs in the case, where are they now, if you know? What are they doing, and how has this affected them? 
Yeah, well, this this case has obviously been dragging on for years, and our clients are now uh, moved on from high school and competing at the collegiate level. Um, but number one, that doesn't undermine the damage that's already been done, and that's why we're continuing with this case, because several of our clients would have had a first place, would have had a record, but for these two males. Uh, but they're now seeing success. They're being able to run and use their talents, and interestingly, they're going to states that have passed Save Women's Sports Laws, places that of the 18 states now that have said, we're not going to let what's happened in Connecticut happen to young women on our state. And I think it's a powerful message that these states are sending that say, your effort matters, your records matter, and in our state, we're going to stand with you and make sure that no record, no championship, no spot on the podium is ever taken away from you. And I think that's a, a real incentive to a lot of incredibly talented young women to move to these states, to go to colleges in those states that are going to respect their competition, respect their athletic abilities, and stand with them against this radical gender ideology. Yeah, and what kind of support are you getting in, in your endeavor? I mean, what organizations, What uh, are you getting some kind of support? I'm not just talking about financial, but in terms of emotional support, uh, intellectual support. Who are your allies? Well, it's been really encouraging to see that we are getting people from all across the aisle, all across the political spectrum. Some of the very most vocal allies we've had have been radical feminist groups, groups that fought for Title IX, that worked hard to get it passed, and that are now seeing how this gender ideology is eroding and erasing their hard-fought game. And so although they're on the other side of the spectrum of us, they're fighting hard for this and standing up. Uh, we're even seeing Democrats coming out and supporting this and recognizing this is not good for women. This is not what we ought to be standing for. And so more and more we're seeing athletic organizations speak up, coalitions speaking up, uh, professional athletes speaking out on this as well. And I think it's really encouraging to see how the, the courage of these four young women from Connecticut took a lot of personal cost in taking a stand for this. Uh, there's been more and more voices supporting them in Congress and, and beyond, uh, and we're confident that one of these days we're going to be at the U.S. Supreme Court advocating for Title IX, for fairness in sports, and for the truth that a man can never become a woman. Matt Sharp, Alliance Defending Freedom, doing the Lord's work here. We wish you well. We think you'll prevail, and I think it's necessary for the United States of America to maintain our sanity, but it's necessary for, to females female athletes, and not just female athletes, but females across the board. So thanks very much, and uh, we'll be following this case very closely as we have been. This is Pete Kersnow on Always Right, substituting for Bob France. We'll come back in a couple of minutes, finish up, and then we'll move on to our next guest. I see Bruce is holding. Bruce, hold on. We'll talk to you if we can when we come back after the break. The things you think are precious I can't understand. Are you reeling in the year? Throwing away the time Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of my... Hello, Cleveland Peakers, and I here substituting for Bob France. We were just on with Matt Sharp of Alliance Defending Freedom talking about, of course, the transgender athlete case currently pending before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Enormously important for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is our sanity. Let's go to Bruce and Medina. Bruce, how are you? Peter, hey, thanks very much for taking the call. I'm, I'm doing good as you can be expected in today's world. Uh, there's so many things we could talk about, but uh, what I wanted to talk to you about, both have uh, something to do with McFan. And tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock in the morning is McFan, Medina County Friends and Neighbors, and it goes from 9 to about 10.30. It's hosted at the Thirsty Cowboy. 
at 2743 Medina Road. It's right behind the uh, uh, Dunkin' Donuts. And tomorrow's speakers will be Skip Claypool, and he will be speaking about NOACA. Uh, and Jonah Schultz is going to be speaking about his new book. But the second thing I want to talk to you about uh, regarding McFan, a couple of months ago, McFan had a speaker, an excellent speaker, and that speaker described that we have to get better candidates for every office. We have to constantly be upgrading ourselves and finding the best candidates possible. And this speaker went on to describe that we have to get people that are conservatives, that understand the Constitution, will uphold the Constitution. And when he was done speaking, I sat there thinking to myself, that, that speaker, he put a picture frame right around himself. And Peter, I'd like to see you on for the U.S. Senate. You are one person that can beat Sherrod Brown. There is no doubt in my mind you will crush Sherrod Brown. And I really want, you know, you're the one who said it, Peter, and we want somebody that understands the Constitution, is going to be a conservative, is not going to be able to be corrupted when they get to Washington, D.C., and can make a difference. Ohio deserves better, and you're that person. Well, Bruce, that's very flattering, although the real problem there is if I'm ever near the nuclear button, you never know what will happen. This is P. Curse now for Bob France, always right. We'll come back after the hour, and we'll be addressing, among other things, Senate Bill 1. We also will try to take as many of your calls as possible. Good morning, Cleveland. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning, Cleveland. It's Pete Kirsten now sitting in for Bob Franson, always right on this Friday morning. We just had a great guest from Alliance Defending Freedom talking about the case with respect to transgender athletes competing against females and obliterating all kinds of records. And right now we've got one of my co-conspirators. There are a lot of great Americans uh, that we talk to on this show and elsewhere uh, you know, one which I'd like to give a shout out to is my friend Connie Walworth, a great American. Also, my brother-in-law, another great American. You guys don't know him. I will not mention his name, otherwise he will kill me. But you may recognize him from my books where he is, uh, the lead character is actually patterned after him. And the guest we have coming up right now is another great American, John Stover from Ohio Values Voters. As I said, he's my co-conspirator. We are involved in a number of different or have been involved in other endeavors trying to preserve what's good about America, specifically with respect to what's happening here in the state of Ohio. And one of the things that's happening is Senate Bill 1. And I know that John had testified before the General Assembly with respect to this, so I wanted to have John on. John, you're at uh, Bringing America Back to Life, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm uh, here with uh, Bob, and uh, Bob is doing a uh, great job as always, uh, Peter. Thank tell, you for having me today. Thanks. Uh, tell Bob when you get a chance. I think the station still has its license. I can't promise that'll be the case <laughs> by 12 o'clock, but we're going to do what we can. We're, we'll do what we can. 
Um, well, I think I think I think if anything, Bob needs to be worried about is that uh, you know it becomes the Peter Kersenal show always right. You know, <laughs> I don't think he's got anything to worry about. I, again, the only thing is the FCC license. But Bob, Bob is um, I think otherwise I wouldn't be a guest of his. Uh, Bob is clearly, I think, the at least the best regional host, and I think he should be having a national show. I think many of our listeners yes. concur with that. Bob is the most prepared of all the talk show hosts I've seen. He's got one of the greatest voices, and that's obviously imperative for a radio show. And he's diligent. Um, he recognizes sometimes if he is, he recognizes and will entertain opposing views he may obliterate that view but he entertains it and treats it respectfully but in any event um john you had testified and you do this all the time you testify before the Ohio general assembly and on a number of issues and you do that in your capacity as the head of ohio values voters and for our listeners i know you've been on before but can you give them a little digest of what ohio values voters is does and how our listeners can help you Yes. Uh, well, Peter, our organization uh, gets involved with um, just uh, family-oriented uh, legislation. Um, you know, we're a pro-life organization. We're a Christian organization. We're standing up for parents, especially now in the General Assembly, when it comes to a number of these bills that uh, we're looking at. And, you know, Senate Bill 1 is a bill, just for the listeners, that would actually turn over the rulemaking authority that now the State Board of Education has to the governor. And, uh, you know, the, the, the governor has, in my opinion, if I was to give him a grade, I would have to give him a D-minus during the last four years when it comes to education. You know, he, uh, he failed to support the state board members, and specifically Brendan Shea's Title IX resolution right. that he drafted. And uh, this was, this was a, uh, I mean, this was a no-nonsense resolution that uh, the governor had every ability to weigh in on because he appoints eight state board members that they serve at his pleasure, but he uh, remains silent. Um, you know, and then when it comes to turning over educational responsibilities to the governor, the way the bill had been drafted and the uh, sponsor of that bill was uh, Senator Bill Reinecke. I read his uh, two-and-a-half-page uh, testimony and uh, you know, he talked about all the academic issues that are facing the, the uh, schools today, and I couldn't agree with him more. But, you know, Peter, as you know, we've worked on the uh, House Bill 327, which was the device right. of concepts and penalty bill. Uh, this bill went nowhere. Uh, you know, we have uh, had House Bill 454 in the last section, the SAFE Act, by Representative Gary Click. This bill would prohibit mutilation surgery on children relative to this gender dysphoria, you know, where boys are being told that they, uh, they may be a girl and girls are being told they may be a boy. You know, these are bills that if we had a governor like they have in the state of Florida, Mike DeWine would be telling the General Assembly leadership, look, get these bills to my desk. But that's not happening. So yeah. the reason, that, I mean, so, so once again, Peter, the reason why I, I did not support Senate Bill 1 and still don't support it until I see that they have some just basic things in place, open meetings, televised meetings. You know, the Senate right now, they have the uh, authority to advise and consent to this director of um, DEW, director of um, deputy director, as well as the uh, 
uh, workforce and, and development and director of education, et cetera. So you got three individuals that they advise and consent on. We also need to see that the Senate has the ability to dissent. In other words, remove an individual from those positions if they're not acting in the best interest of the people in the state of Ohio. But, the um, you know, we have a number of things going on right now in the General Assembly, and this is uh, one of the big bills. It's passed the Senate. It's now over into the House. The House will consider it. Hearings will be coming up soon. And, um, you know, we plan on being there to testify when it does reach the point of uh, public testimony in the House. Yeah, that's great. Uh, very often we tend to, I know I'm guilty of this, we tend to focus on things at the national level because that's what the media covers, you know. Um, all the federal legislation, federal regs, what's going on at the federal level captures our attention. And sometimes what we miss, you don't, you don't miss this, your organization doesn't, and it's so extraordinarily important, is what's happening at the local and state level. And a lot of the action, yeah. most of the action that actually touches us occurs at that level. Where you are affected is the things you can almost personally, physically touch. And this is one of those things. Senate Bill 1 is one of them. Um, there are a whole host of others. You, you mentioned what we had worked on before with respect to, um, you know, the, the whole issue with respect to, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a little bit of a cough here, but the, the whole issue with respect to transgenderism, et cetera, et cetera, critical race mm-hmm. theory. Uh, critical race theory went, no, I mean, the, the whole critical race instruction, we were able to stop it, but then we had bills that we had drafted. You, you and I worked on it and some others. And yet, as you yes. just indicated, it's stalled in a plus eight Republican state. And when you look at the state level, it's greater than a plus eight Republican state. And we can't get any movement. And again, I don't like to be pointing fingers. And I think Governor DeWine is a perfectly nice guy and all of that. But uh, his own state board of education appointees did very little, if anything, to get this thing moved, despite the fact that. Tons and tons of parents were almost shrieking that we needed some form of protection. But with respect to uh, Senate Bill 1, my understanding is, and again, I'm not immersed in this like you are. You had just testified for the General Assembly on this. But I think you indicated it transfers uh, governance of K-12 through education from the State Board of Education, or at least to some extent, to the governor and a Department of Education and workforce that would be created. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes, it would create the uh, position of director of uh, of uh, education and workforce, and then there would be a uh, deputy director of education and a deputy director of workforce, which uh, those three positions would uh, require advice and consent by the Senate. Um, you know, and and uh, you know the the real issue that I and a number of other people, Peter, have in the state of Ohio is the fact that you know if the uh, the governor seems to be that he could not get it right relative to some of the appointments that he had under his authority that the General Assembly had given to him as relates to the appointment of state board members. You know, my concern is how is he going to get it right when it comes to these three important positions that are going to have rulemaking authority throughout the entire state of Ohio? This is a, a real concern. Yeah, and speaking of amendments, we talked a little bit about what it does in terms of the structure, but does this at all affect or does it address critical race theory being taught in the schools? Well, at this point in time, it does not. And, uh, you know, I had a laundry list of things that we needed to uh, see included in this bill. 
You know, it, uh, just uh, once again for the listeners, Peter, uh, every uh, two years, and we're at this point now uh, with the budget. The budget normally is drafted. It's a two-year budget by the state, and uh, normally it's presented to the governor in June. At that time, uh, many many of these bills could, in fact, be placed into the budget. So we're hopeful that, you know, not only Save Women's Sports Act, but Device of Concept, the CRT bill, and SAFE Act, uh, et cetera, some of these bills that we need to see can be placed in the budget and passed at that time, and it would be as if it becomes law, and that's what we're hopeful of. And I have spoken to uh, some key people in the Senate and in the House, and uh, hopefully, you know, that will happen. Um, you used a couple of acronyms there, and although we've got very sophisticated listeners who are on top of these things, some of us may not be aware of some of these. You mentioned CRT. That's critical race theory, correct? Yes. And another acronym is CSE, which is comprehensive sex education. Is that addressed in the bill? Yes, that, well, that's something that is uh, not addressed in the bill as well. Um, you know, and these are, these are some of the things that you know, we need to see that's put in place. We did have, uh, you know, success two years ago in the budget uh, where House Bill 240 was passed, Parents' Right to Know Act, and, uh, you know, it requires the 600-plus uh, school districts in the state of Ohio requires a greater level of reporting where if they're teaching comprehensive sex education, they have to report it to the, the um, State Department of Education, and that's made available and we had a uh, very comprehensive report that we had put out no more than a couple of weeks ago that uh, lists the school districts that uh, some did not report anything. They're in violation of the law. And some districts did report, but, you know, they are in violation of the fact that, uh, you know, they're not notifying parents. You know, one of the things, uh, Peter, that uh, many Democrats uh, are interested in always seeing is they want to say, well, parents have the right to opt out. Uh, about two and a half, three years ago, I sat before uh, a Democrat senator who called a meeting, called me up and said, you know, can you come down? I did, sat down with him. He says, I said, you know, parents need to be opting in, not opting out. Right. You have to, you need to go to, you need to, the school districts need to get parents after providing the information to them to opt them in. And, oh, he didn't want to hear that. But I, and I looked at him and I said, well, Senator, tell me, how is it that a parent opts out of something they have no knowledge of? And he had no answer. Right. So, you know, this is a lot of these things are to indoctrinate. You know, one of the things also, let me just state real quickly here. I know we're maybe running out of time, Peter. But oh, go ahead. You know, I, I just I just learned um, a couple of days ago about, uh, you know, some of these other states that are far ahead of Ohio when it comes to these educational matters, such as Virginia, Florida, Tennessee. But Tennessee, House Bill 30, just passed the House. It's on its way to the Senate. They feel it's not going to have any problems there and then the governor will sign it. It's going to criminalize criminalize these, uh, these drag shows where grown men dressed as women, women are performing in front of children. It's going to look upon it as adult entertainment, and there's going to be strict penalties in Tennessee for this to put a stop to it. This is something that I've spoken to. Um, I spoke to a state senator yesterday. I've communicated with three state reps now, something that we need to also... Uh, have in the state of Ohio, so I'm urging them to draft the bill. Let's get hearings on it, and let's get this um, passed into law in our state. John, you're closer to this than I am, but when I look at this, I see comprehensive sex education is really kind of a cover for a whole host of things that I think your average parent and grandparent would be horrified 
to learn yes. their children are subjected to. We've seen on various television shows, for example, the t- porn. It is truly porn. It's that's not an exaggeration. It's it's not you know some type. It, it is porn that is actually in the libraries. It's truly stunning. And yet we don't have a viable mechanism, at least pursuant to the law. We we have. You're telling me this bill doesn't even address that, correct? Well, you know, you know, uh, Peter. The thing that uh, really is uh, troubling is that, and I've often said this when I've gone to speak before groups of people throughout the state uh, when they've uh, asked that I come down and speak. I've said, you know, if I was to stand outside a school district any school district, any school in the state of Ohio, and pass out the material that children are subject to in the libraries and in the schools in the state of Ohio, within probably 30 minutes, law enforcement would be called, I'd be arrested, and I would be charged with a third or fourth degree felony under Ohio Revised Code 2907.31, disseminating harmful material to a juvenile. And yet we have this taking place constantly in the state of Ohio, in many school districts, and in our libraries. Folks, um, listen to this closely. The fact is that we are harming our kids immeasurably, and many of us are not aware of what's going on. It's being done surreptitiously. It's being done behind our backs, not an exaggeration. Think of the damage that's being done to their psyches. We see now so many of our young people are so fragile. They, they, they seem to have all kinds of, of issues. And this is one of the driving elements of that. As parents, as grandparents, we need to stand firm, make demands. And it's unforgivable that we have politicians who don't address this forthrightly. This needs to be addressed John Stover's addressing it. Ohio Values Voters is addressing it. They're doing yeoman's work, but it's just one. There's a huge megalith out there, a giant establishment that's fighting against everything that John Stover and his folks are doing. We need your support. John, thanks so much for being on the front lines. This was very valuable for the listeners, I think. And good luck to you. And say hello to Bob for me. I will. Thank you, Peter, and God bless you. Cleveland, you can tell by the bumper music, Kirsten Al sitting in for Bob France. That is the great Jimi Hendrix when music was music. We've had some great guests. John Stover just got off. Uh, he's from Ohio Values Voters. And at the bottom of the hour, we're going to have the great Bernie Marino, one of my good friends and former Senate candidate for the state of Ohio. Um, I want to make a plug for Kirsten Al. Kirsten Al, for one play, you know, this has been an endeavor of mine and now for several years. I want to play for the Cleveland Browns for just one play. I will sign a waiver. I will sign a waiver, Cleveland Browns. So if I am killed or injured in any respect, there's no liability whatsoever. I will have my family sign also. It will be incredibly entertaining. It will be like you know the Roman Colosseum to see the lions feasting upon the Christians. People will want to tune in to see whether or not Kirsten House survives. I, yes, last night I benched 225 pounds 17 times. My 40 time is not what it used to be. I'm an old 
man now, but I can still do about a 4.8. It would be incredibly entertaining. It would fill the stands because, again, it's like the Roman Coliseum. Does Curse now get killed by any one of these NFL players out there? No, he wouldn't because he's a lot smarter and a lot wilier and meaner than any of them. Kersenow sitting in for Bob France. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to have Bernie Marino. Against the darkness of tyranny. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. Good morning, Cleveland. Pete Chris now sitting in for Bob France. That is the Chambers brother, brothers with time. It's time for us to preserve America by talking to one of our great Americans, former Senate candidate for the Republican nomination in Ohio, and my friend Bernie Marino. Bernie, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, except it's a little snowy for me today here <laughs> in Westlake. Yeah, same with me. It is mid-March, typical Cleveland. We didn't get any snow for about the last month, and all of a sudden now it decides to start snowing. and probably will do so until mid-April. Bernie is, as many of you know, he's been on this show before, uh, self-made man, just in the American dream. Bernie, tell people a little bit about yourself. You are a businessman. You've lived the American dream Tell us a little bit about your origins and how you came to Ohio. Yeah, so I was born in Columbia, South America, so a little bit further south. That's why uh, snow is a little bit of a foreign concept today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my mom and dad moved us to America when we were kids, me and my uh, six siblings. And we, <clears throat> they left everything behind. They wanted us to grow up in the one country on Earth where your destiny is determined by your will, by your ability to uh, uh, persevere, by your desire to work hard. Uh, I grew up in South Florida. I wanted to be in the car business. I went to school in Michigan. Uh, don't let your uh, your listeners uh, hear that part. <laughs> and uh, and I graduated from school, got married, went to work for General Motors Saturn Division. And then when I was 26, a, a, a car dealer in Boston asked me to run one of his dealerships. I'd never worked in a car dealership in my life. And uh, made it his most profitable store his first year. Helped him grow from six to 55 dealerships. And then how I got to Cleveland was 18 years ago, Mercedes-Benz approached me and said, hey, we've got the worst dealership in America. It's in North Olmsted. We'd like you to buy it and see if you can turn it around. And the dealership was selling four cars a month. It was uh, rated from a customer perspective the worst in the country. And we turned it into uh, a dealership that got their what's called Best of the Best Award for 12 years in a row. And uh, it was the largest seller of luxury automobiles in America. I sold... And then I built 14 other dealerships, that's 15, sold those all about three or four years ago to start a technology company that uses blockchain technology to uh, make car titles digital. And we're now the title issuing authority in West Virginia and a bunch of other states, and the company's doing amazing. And in March of 2020, to make the long story short, uh, when lockdowns happened, I couldn't believe the American government would do that. It seemed incredibly antithesis to what I knew America to be. And more surprising to me was how many Americans just accepted it. Yeah. And that's why I decided to run for the U.S. Senate. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it takes immigrants 
who really value America and the reason why they came here. I come from a family of immigrants also, and you become a patriot, an unshakable patriot, if that's the case. Tell us what your vision of America is. When you first ran for the Senate, what were your issues? What was your platform? America was built on freedom, but freedom meaning self-governance, the ability that the individual is more important than the government. The idea that the government works for us, we tell the government what to do, not the other way around. And when we broke that formula uh, in, in such a, a massive way in March of 2020, uh, that's really what motivated me. I mean, America is a beacon to the world. I think people, Peter, you're exactly right. Peter, people who've lived here their whole life take America for granted because they don't understand the alternative is really bad. I think for all of human history, there's never been a country like America, a place that, again, anybody can be successful regardless of where you came from. You know, if my parents have moved us, me and my siblings, to any other country on earth, there's no doubt in my mind I could never have accomplished what I accomplished anywhere but only in America. And we have to also be the people, us immigrants, especially from South American countries, that say America is about a melting pot, about becoming American and leaving uh, your, your Colombian heritage, you can still embrace it, but it's about accepting and understanding America, mastering the language, understanding its history, its civics. And I think what happens today is kids are being taught all this intersectionality, right? I'm a binary, heterosexual, gender, all this crap. Uh, none of that is what America is about. America is about a unified country. Yeah, that's uh, the, you know, the whole DEI concept seems to be about division. We're told constantly that, uh, for example, you, I, in the lead into this, I was talking about the so-called diverse cabinet of uh, President Biden. We're told that Americans apparently need to see people who look like themselves, uh, cosmetically at least, but they all think alike. Diversity hasn't made life better for Americans per se. We've told diversity is necessary so people can see leaders that look like them at every level. But what are we, children? Okay, so now we have a cabinet that looks like America Yet has that made America better? Has that healed America's wounds? The new polls that we see show that race relations, for example, are at the worst level they've been in 50 years, despite the fact, actually 60 years, despite the fact that we have this cabinet that looks like America. But when you look at the diversity of the cabinet, cabinet there's one uniformity, and it seems to be incompetency. Bernie, if well, you know, there's still all kinds of issues that... Um, really perplex me, and I know probably perplex you, and one of those is how Sherrod Brown stays in office. Uh, here we have, as I just indicated, a plus eight red state, and it's even worse than that when you go beyond presidential elections. If you look at senatorial elections, it's more than that. Yet he's been able, you know, uh, he's doing what's necessary to remain in office, and we have an election coming up uh, shortly. I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal. I think it was Carl Rove wrote in it, I believe it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, and he was talking about various states that have senatorial elections coming up. And he mentioned Ohio, and he talked about certain metrics, such as, um, you know, that it is a plus-eight state and that, um, you know, it's very strongly Republican and uh, Sherrod Brown has had the benefit of running in years. Like, for example, last year he ran was not a presidential, you know, not a presidential election year, so he has the benefit of not having to have that tide coming into it. But what's, what is your view of Sherrod Brown, the job he's done? 
Well, he's he's lied to Ohio. Let's let's just be totally blunt, and it, and it's going to require uh, what you do, what Bob does, other conservative media, because Sherrod is able to get away with that lie because the media he's literally married to the media, right? So the media is going to do all his bidding. They're going to cover for him. They've been covering for him, but this is a guy who's been a total complete career politician. He's been in, in some sort of elected office since 1975. He's been in Washington, D.C. since 1992, and he's lied to Ohio. He, he says one thing in Ohio, but he has the most liberal voting record in the United States Senate, more than Elizabeth Warren, more than Bernie Sanders. That's not the values of Ohio. So he's got to go. It's plain and simple. Yeah, and I think Rove mentioned, um, I'm trying to remember the numbers. Uh, my memory is not the best, but I mentioned that, um, you know, it's a, a plus-eight state, but in addition to that, as you know, challengers have a difficult time coming up with the money. And the Democrats just swamp Republicans anyway. And I think he had, meaning Sherrod Brown, had a 6-to-1 advantage in terms of fundraising during his last election. 13-to-1. 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 My goodness. 13-to-1. That's difficult. How does a Republican challenger get the resources to compete then? We have to lean in. I think what happens is, you know, Democrats have true believers. They believe in their religion, and their religion is this LGBTQ agenda, this obscene obsession with climate change, this uh, crazy, uh, I can't even think of a word to say, uh, uh, desire to end the life of babies. Those are the three things that they believe in so much, and they'll spend money to do that. Republicans, let's be honest, they are typically uh, focused on business, focus on uh, doing what's good for them, and don't lean into politics. Uh, maybe you don't have to run for office, but you've got to lean in and you've got to contribute to people who are going to change the country because otherwise we're going to lose it. And I'm, for one, not willing to do that. Yeah. Um, what would you do if you were to run? Let's say that at some point somebody says, hey, we need Bernie Marino to run against Sherrod Brown. What are, say, maybe the top two or three issues that you would address? Number one for me is, is the border. Uh, a country with no border is not a country. We, we can allow our sovereignty to be violated every day. We need to reform our asylum laws so that if somebody breaks into our country and violates our law, they forfeit the right to seek asylum. Today, that's not the case. They can break into our country legally, raise their hand, and say, I'm being persecuted in my home country, and then we put them through this ridiculously long, year-long process. If you want asylum, you either join your home country, your neighboring country, or a designated port of entry, period. Number two is we have to wage war against the Mexican drug cartels. I, like I said, I was born in Colombia, South America, during the Pablo Escobar era. We basically almost made Colombia a narco state. The difference is that Colombia is not nearly as strategically important as Mexico. They're our largest trading partner. We share 2,000 miles of border with them. We have to declare the Mexican drug cartels foreign terrorist organizations. I'll work with Mexico, convince Mexico to allow us to go in there and eradicate them. And then thirdly, we need to tax remittances from the U.S. to foreign countries to use pay for border security. The U.S. taxpayer should not be funding border security. That is not something that should happen. And again, we don't need more border agents. That's another burden on taxpayers. We need better policy, and that's 
for me, number one. Now, I'll be called a immigrant hater. I'll be called a Hispanic hater, but I don't like South Americans. And maybe <laughs> that's going to be tough to do. Well, there's a couple cousins that may fit that description, okay? But they're going to have a hard time pinning that on me. And I think, uh, for me, uh, the biggest issue that we're facing right now. Yeah, and, and I think, actually, we're talking about, um, when you're talking about remittances, you probably have a better handle on this than I do, but I've seen two different figures for the amount of outflow of cash that comes from or goes from immigrants here in the United States to Mexico, and it's, I believe, last time I saw it was $60 billion. Is that Does that sound right? It is. Uh, it is almost more than the tax revenue that Mexico collects from its own citizens. That's incredible. That's incredible. And it could be going and a to lot our- of that money, And a lot of that money, Peter, goes from people who cross, who pay these coyotes to bring them into America illegally, and then they spring on them what they call a river tax, which is saying, hey, listen, we brought you this way. We're going to give you two choices. We're going to kill you, or we're going to let you cross into America. We're going to tell you how to sneak by their laws. But once you get there, you need to pay us twice as much as we told you. And until you do, if you don't, we will hunt you down and kill you. In, inside America. Inside America, America, yes. Destroying inside our America. sovereignty. And what are we doing? What's the Biden administration doing about it? it? It looks like they're doing absolutely nothing. I was at the, at the top of the first hour. I was talking about the fact that in New York, they are sending illegal immigrants to college on our dime. It's truly extraordinary. Um, free college, free college, free health care, free unemployment, free food stamps, these, these housing. These are all things that are social safety net programs for Americans, not for illegal migrants. Listen, we would love to be able to be a wealthy enough country where we could afford to take care of the rest of the world. That's obviously not the case. We can't even take care of our own people. We, we can have empathy and compassion for people in other places in the world that don't have what we have here in America, but the answer is to take what we have and destroy it for the, for the ability to help a tiny amount of the world, which is all we can do. Uh, asylum laws are never intended for economic migrants. And, and I'll, I'll just push back. The Biden administration is not only doing nothing. They're, they're the ones encouraging this. And, and what they're doing is they're bringing the migrants in. Let's just face it. It's about lowering wages, giving corporations right. slaves, modern-day slaves, that they own. And we, any kind of moral society would never put up with the idea that in America today, we have modern-day slaves that these companies can absolutely brutalize, take advantage of, because if they speak up, then, of course, they're deported, and they'll do anything not to have that happen. That's how bad situations are there. We can't allow this to go on. The fact that it's already gone on this long, honestly, I, I don't understand how these politicians in D.C. wake up and look at themselves in the mirror. Bernie, what is the, there are so many from which to choose, but what's the one failing of the Biden administration that you think harms America the most? I think it's a fundamental belief that the individual is subservient to the government and that you could have a small group of elites in Washington, D.C., that can tell uh, the small people, which is how they view Americans, what to do, how to do it, when to do it. It's, it's the natural course of human events. That's where socialism and authoritarianism is built on, this idea that uh, this small group is smarter than the whole. They don't believe in American exceptionalism. They don't believe that America is the light for the rest of the world. 
and they have this idea, this globalist view that uh, America is fundamentally flawed. I think from there, all the policies flow. It strikes me, it's my belief, and maybe others disagree, that um, obviously he's won elections, but Sherrod Brown is a singularly unimpressive individual. And, uh, you know, he's got the advantage of incumbency, which is something that is real. It's usually, it depends on which election you're talking about and at what level, but it's usually on average a six-point advantage just to be an incumbent, so you've got to overcome that intrinsic built-in advantage. Uh, you know, he's won re-election in this state. What do you think the the most effective strategy to defeat a Sherrod Brown would look like? So you have to take him at his core. So his compelling argument is that Republicans are the party of the rich, wealthy, and powerful, and that he is the fighter for the working-class Americans. So you have to deconstruct that narrative, and you have to run a campaign that puts the American worker first. So whatever policies you're advocating fundamentally as a conservative Republican is about building a strong and thriving upperly mobile uh, work, middle class. And, and you have to show how Sherrod Brown, the policies he's voted for, do the exact opposite. I'll give you just a quick example. You look at what's gone on with government spending for the last two years. It's created this insane amount of inflation that we all see and feel and it's, it's, it's real, right? We see it every day. Every single day we make a transaction, we feel this inflation. Who does that hurt the most? The wealthy or the middle class, right? So you have to show that. Then you have a Federal Reserve system that wants to tame government-created inflation. And rather than saying to the government, stop spending money, they wage war on consumers. And what they're trying to do today is, Lower wages by creating massive unemployment. Again, who does that hurt? Does it hurt the working class? Does it hurt the wealthy? And then finally, we talked about illegal immigration. Illegal immigration does not affect the CEO. That economic migrant isn't going to replace the CEO of Kroger, but they are going to replace or lower the wages of that union carpenter, or that union mill worker that uh, now is very tempting for a construction company to pay these people under the table and not hire those union contractors. So you have to dissect his policies and say, he may say he's for you, the worker. He is not. I am. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, this influx of illegal immigrants, we've got data at the Civil Rights Commission that shows that it hurts blue-collar workers the most, of course, because of the reasons you mentioned, the competition and the fact that a lot of employers prefer to have illegal immigrants because, as you indicated, you know, they're, not, they're less likely to complain to the EEOC, OSHA, and other alphabet agencies, and they'll take a lower wage in addition. And let's face it, many of them are extremely hard workers. But uh, it depresses average wages in the United States among similar cohorts by as much as ten to $15,000 a year. It's extraordinary, and it's displaced at least 1.6 million black workers, for example. You know, the party, the Democratic Party, likes to be the party of, of uh, minorities, and who does this hurt the most? Minorities who are going to be competing against illegal immigrants. It happens over and over and over again. Um, Bernie, one last question, and that is, if um, a Republican candidate is to succeed, or, well, put it this way, um, what do you think, your first, if, if you were to run again, what would be the first thing you would do once you're a senator? So uh, work work to get these asylum laws uh, reformed. Uh, we need also to uh, de-escalate the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, we cannot uh, be 
moving towards World War III. Exactly. We attain government spending. Uh, that's a, in, in a very harsh way. Uh, we're, we're, listen, the government shouldn't be in a situation where it is a handout machine. Uh, we want to create equal opportunity for everybody. One of the frustrations I have with what I call Democrat light Republicans is that they see a problem and always want the government to solve it. Sometimes we have to recognize we live in a country where we should be solving our own problems and making certain that equal opportunity exists for everybody. And I'll just say this, Peter, to take down Sheriff Brown, who's a you know half a century politician, we're not going to do that by nominating a, a career politician. Right? A career politician that's a Republican is just as bad as a career politician who is a uh, Democrat. We're not going to do it by having somebody engage the woke mobs. We're not going to do it by somebody who insults grassroots and disrespects them, calls them conspiracy theorists. Uh, that is not the path for a strong conservative fighter that we need to replace Sheriff Brown. Bernie, thanks very much for your time. Uh, good luck to you. You've already had a lot of great luck, mainly because of your own endeavor. Ladies and gentlemen, Bernie Marino, great American and somebody who gets America. This is Pete Kersenow, sitting in for Bob France on Always Right. We'll come back at the top of the hour with, well, actually, we'll come back in a couple of minutes, I think, with your calls. We'll be addressing all manner of things. So we got James Brown taking us out, and uh, he'll probably be bringing us back in. Pete Kersenow for Bob France. Pete Kersenow sitting in for Bob France on Always Right. We just finished with Bernie Marino. We talked about all things America. We've got great callers holding. We will be coming back to you. I'm going to take uh, as many as I can before the break, and then we'll come back at the top of the hour. It's open line Friday from 11 to 11.45. We'll talk about anything you want to talk about, including whether or not the Browns should have Kersenow for one play. I think that's a no-brainer. Let's go to BJ in North Olmsted. BJ, how are you? Thank you. Two quick points. The fact that this administration is turning loose government agencies to go after the American public, the IRS, CIA, the FBI, harassing school teachers, not school teachers, but parents that complain about what's going on. The fact that he is turning government agencies on the American public is a revolutionary war coming on. That's number one. Number two, raising the taxes on the American public to cause a depression like it was in 1929 with all all these people living in these big, beautiful homes and can be losing them is going to cause a catastrophe. There is a socialist, communist uh, nucleus in this country that wants to destroy America for a one-world government. And if that occurs, poor America. I love this country. I fought for this country. I was a medic to serve during the Korean War. And all these GIs and all these people that served in the military, I hope there's an uprising from them saying, enough of you communists, you socialists, you rotten people that hate the country and hate your fellow Americans. God yeah. bless America. There you go, BJ. 
Um, uh, thanks very much for your service. I know that so many of our listeners who are veterans and are currently serving, they concur with you 1,000%. It just just kills me to watch what's happening by this administration's hand to the United States of America. They're turning it into something we don't recognize. Laura, Sister Mary Grace, one of my favorites, and everybody else who's holding will come back after the top of the hour. We'll take your calls. Peekers now, sitting for Bob France. We're going to have a great time in the last hour. Now sitting in for Bob Franson, always right again. That's James Brown when music was music. Sitting in for Bob France is always a pleasure, but the greatest pleasure is not just our guests, but our callers who always have really remarkable insights to share. And uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about. We've got, among others, Laura, Sister Mary Grace, Bob, everybody who's holding, please continue to hold. We will get to you. Laura in Garfield Heights, how are you today? Hi, Peter. Thanks for taking my call. You had a caller, the, the first caller that called in to you. I, I want to uh, second that and, and echo what he said. You are truly, I think, the best candidate, and I'll tell you why. I have four young grandkids, and I want to see them grow up in a free America like I did. And... You, at your very core of cores, I've been listening to you for a long time, and I know that at your core, you are a constitutional conservative. You have values and morals that are unshakable, and we need somebody who can not only defeat Sherrod Brown, but also once you get into uh, the Senate, not, you know, melt into the establishment and go along to get along, but would really stand up for Ohioans and the United States in general, and you're the, you're the only one who says things like, you know, we need to show fidelity to the law and apply rational policies according to that. You say things like, we cannot allow this to stand, and that's why I believe you're the best candidate. I think there are a lot of us Ohioans out here who feel the same way, and we would love to see you throw your hat in the ring. Uh, Laura, I'm very honored. Uh, that's just, uh, I don't know what to say to that, uh, other than uh, there are, we just heard from one, there are people out there with the talent, the knowledge, the unshakable commitment to the principles of the United States of America, and who've got the experience, who've actually run for office before. And um, what scares me a little bit is, if even if I were to do so, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> somebody like me, I've never been in politics before, other than on the periphery, of course, and commenting upon it, is that uh, I am so, I think, I just have this commitment to the United States of America. I'm, a, I'm afraid of what I would say or do on the floor of the Senate. Uh, 
because these people drive me absolutely nuts. And that includes a lot of Republicans, such as our Senate Majority Leader, who I have met and know and have dealt with in the past, who I don't know what gets into them once they get to Washington. I mean, I do, because I've been in Washington. I've been a member of the Civil Rights Commission for a long time. I lived in Washington when I was a member of the National Labor Relations Board. And the last thing you want to do as an American is go and live within Washington, because within a short period of time, I think you start thinking like the swamp. I think it's just I, it, it, it's something happens to you. That's why I've been in favor of outsourcing many of our agencies. Take, for example, the Federal Aviation Administration or the National Labor Relations Board or any other alphabet organization, alphabet agency, and put it in Omaha, put it in Portland, put it in Austin, put it in Jackson, Mississippi, and draw from there. Because the one thing I told Donald Trump when I first met him was interviewing me to be Secretary of Labor. I listen to the guy because he is a fascinating individual. Whether you like him or not, understand, somebody who never ran for office beat the two biggest American dynasties of the time, the Bush, the Bush uh, family and the Clinton administra- uh, administration, the Clinton family. The guy is, I didn't think so until I met him, but the guy is different. I mean, and I say that in a good way. There's a lot of things about him you can quibble with. But the one thing I said is, Mr. President, these folks, meaning those within the Beltway, are not your friends. When you have 98% of uh, different departments, the, the Defense Department, something I think I don't remember the exact figure, but 83% of people employed by the Defense Department voted for Clinton. There's this seeping kind of um, administration lock that happens when you are within the Beltway. They talk the same way. They think the same way. Uh, anyway, that's a long-winded thing to say. I'm, I'm very, very um, honored by what you had to say, Laura. I do agree with the substance of what you had to say, not with respect to me, but with respect to what's needed to make this country move forward. I do think we've just talked to three great Americans just in the last couple of hours. Matt from uh, uh, Lions Defending Freedom. We talked to John Stover. We've talked to Bernie Marino. These are folks who get it. Folks like you, yourself, Laura, and people who are currently on hold. I've talked to some of you before. You're great Americans. We will win. But, Laura, thanks so much for your call. I'll tell you what. Um, I'm not going to out- outwardly dismiss anything like this, um, but we have great people who are running, and uh, we should really focus on them. Sister Mary Grace, how are you today? God's blessings to you. I'm telling you, God's blessings. you got to put the armor on, the armor of God. According to 6, you understand, it's Ephesians 6, 10 through 29. But I want to get on to better things. Because once you have the armor on, you have the protection of God. That is most important. Our God is alive. He is listening. He wants to see us all stand up for him. He's our El Shaddai. All powerful. God bless you. But I'm telling you, you have to come against these people. They're wicked. And I will not say they're sick. Well, Sister Mary Grace, if I could just uh, interject there, I do think we are afraid to use certain words in certain language that is sure. that seems to, I mean, the, the left, and by that it's virtually every institution, because they have a lock on every institution, uh, but they aware. make you feel embarrassed and kind of retrograde when you use certain words such as wicked and evil, as if we are some kind of, uh, you know, 12th century, uh, you know, uh, no, it's a deviant right. uh, behavior. 
Yeah, and and, and it's important for us to speak with moral clarity, capture the language, take it back again, because the first thing that the left or any totalitarian does, and watch, look at the old Soviet Union, you can look at Germany, is they change the language. When they can change the way you speak, they can change the way you think, and they manipulate the way you think, and when they do that, you will start to accept patently absurd propositions. That's why it's important not to cede the language to the left. When you can say with a straight face that a man is a woman, they can make you say anything. And that's what the Soviets did for a long time. It's not about a particular, you know, narrow interest or ideology with respect to, say, uh, you know, the transgender ideology. It's about affecting your sense of reality so that they can manipulate you and subjugate you. That's not an exaggeration, folks. We just got finished talking to Bernie Marino. You talk to immigrants. I've said this before. Talk to immigrants from the old Eastern Soviet, the, the Eastern Bloc. Talk to immigrants from, you know, who are, uh, you know, old Vietnamese boat people or from Cambodia, and they will tell you, look, we've seen this movie before, friends. Don't go down this path. But the left, because they control all the media, is very good about making you feel like you're some kind of hick for talking like this. You are not. Look, I have been in the Ivy League for a long time. I still, you know, go back to my reunions. I, uh, these folks are not brighter than we are. All right, I admit, I've pled guilty, graduated from an Ivy League school. But th- right now, there are no elites in the Ivy League schools. These people can barely spell their names. They've reduced admissions levels to virtually nothing, and they don't teach the eternal verities anymore. Anyway, I need to move on because we've got people holding, and these are great Americans. Sister Mary Grace, thanks so much for calling. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Let's see. We are going to go to Bob in Middleburg Heights, who's been holding for a while. Bob, how are you? Great, Peter. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to move to a local Cleveland issue, and I don't know if your listeners are aware of the mayor of Cleveland, He's going to make an attempt to sue Kia and Hyundai Motor Corporations because of the recent rash of thefts of their product, their cars. This man here believes that, kind of like, and this can relate to a gun, too. The gun's the problem. The car's the problem. That's why they're being stolen. That's not the case. So this is kind of the mentality of this guy, and he's complaining that his police force is spending too much time and energy on these thefts, but how much is he going to spend on this lawsuit? I mean, this guy is just, where is he even coming from? He, I mean, we talk about another black eye for Cleveland. I mean, this is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, it's going to really encourage Key and Hyundai to invest in uh, Cleveland, isn't it, uh, that we're suing them? Go ahead. He's go ahead, blaming Bob. the car, not the people. It's yeah. the people who take the cars. The cars, <laughs> the doors don't open automatically. The cars don't start automatically. I you agree know, with you entirely. He, he has a theft problem and a criminal problem in the city of Cleveland that he's not, again, he's looking the other way or looking for an excuse. That's the problem. And this is the type of leader we have here in Cleveland. Yeah, you're exactly right, Bob. I agree with you entirely. I watched a little bit of, uh, normally I, I miss these things, but I did see a little bit of a news report about, you know, city the city of Cleveland approving doing this, the, the Cleveland City Council. Hey, how about this? How about hiring a few more cops? Um, last time I looked, I heard that we are undermanned in the city of Cleveland. You know, if you had enough cops, and let's, let's face it, we talked about going back to fundamentals. 
and making sure our kids are raised the right way so they're not stealing things. That's the first and most important thing. By the way, do one thing and 95% of these problems are abated, are solved. That is, marry the mother of your child, period. Do that and you'll see so many problems disappear. But given that we're not allowed to talk that way, hire some cops. I don't know who is, uh, let me see, I think it's Jeff Fulmer's now heading up the CPPA. Make noise, Jeff. Make a lot of noise. The people are behind you. Whoever's the head of the FOP right now, and forgive me if I can't remember, I used to deal with both the FOP and the CPP. I was on the other side because I was, you know, the, the labor attorney for the city of Cleveland, but I loved the cops to death. Still do. You have a megaphone, a, a, micro, a, a microphone in which to compel these elected idiots to do things on behalf of the city of Cleveland. The people will back you. So do the job of making noise and tell them, hire more cops. I work in downtown Cleveland. I want to see more cops patrolling the area there. I don't want to see thugs in downtown Cleveland. I don't want to see the poor homeless people down there defecating and urinating on the street. These poor guys, everyone down there knows because they see me all the time. When they beg for money, I know what they're going to use the money for. But I'm one of those folks who automatically thinks, what if this is Jesus Christ in disguise? I know that sounds silly. For some of you, but not for many of you. You know what I'm saying. So even though I suspect that the minute I give them a dollar or five dollars, they're going to go off and get some Mad Dog 2020, I can't say no. But those folks should be taken care of, not through little handouts from people like me. Get those people off the street. Get the criminals off the street. Get more cops. Let's go to Navy man Norm in Strongsville. Norm, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, Peter, and I echo some of the previous caller's comments about a potential candidacy for you for the United States (laughs) Senate. You're articulate, you're intelligent, but most of all, you are a Christian man and you tell the truth, and the truth will win the day. You know, there's an old saying, I think, came from Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, evil may have its hour, but God will win the day. And believe me, Peter, I think you are the best candidate uh, that this uh, 82-year-old ex-Navy man uh, could ever hope to would run for the Senate. Because Mr. Connie Schultz has had <laughs> <laughs> has had his uh, 12 years of uh, supping at the public trough and basically, you know, uh, running all over the people of Ohio with his uh, asinine votes. But, Peter, I'll tell you, the people of Ohio would be behind you four square and 100%. And I pray for the day. You fill in all the blocks, okay? I, I told my wife, I, I was teasing about the uh, wonderful FBI and their uh, raid on uh, the pro-life advocate Mark Houck. I said, well, geez, I fill in all the blocks. I said, I'm a veteran. I'm Catholic. I'm pro-life. I'm uh, very much for the country. And uh, there's nothing else that they can do, you know, against me. But, Peter, we either stand for something or we'll fall for anything. And God bless you. I pray, and you would have me volunteering for you. I volunteered (laughs) for Trump twice. Uh, I would donate to your campaign. And I think you would be the best solution for the people of Ohio. And God bless you. Thank you, Norman, and God bless you also. And, you know, I agree with, every, aside from me being a candidate, everything else you had to say with, of course, 
agree with. We're at a, a tipping point. You've heard me say that a number of times before. We are at a tipping point in this country. We either stand up for the country, we cast aside our reticence because the left has been effective in painting us as being these, you know, kind of uh, out-of-controlled hicks who happen to put our hand over our hearts when we say the pledge, who stand when we say the pledge, who salute the flag, who have family members who have died or been maimed in the service of this country, and yet we're supposed to apologize we are supposed to apologize. I am never, ever going to apologize for being an American and believing in the greatness of America. Sorry, not going to happen. You've been trying to pervert our understanding of America for such a long time. Not going to happen. Let's go to Charlie in Vermilion. Hey, Pete. Thanks for taking the call. I love it when you guys have those Ohio Valley voters. They're really fighting the fight. They are. Thank you for having those guys on. Hey, I'm thinking, what big experiment did the United States Supreme Court do in 2015, just seven years ago, that is literally changing our society as we speak? And you got to see it. It's got this. It, they gave a stamp approval for gay marriage, and now we got gender fluidity, we got trans, all within the last seven years. This is an experiment that's failed. We've got to push back against it. They should have had a time limit on it and see how it worked, but it didn't work. We were, our society's falling apart at the seams because we said gay marriage is normal. What do you think? Um, you can thank Justice Kennedy for not looking at the Constitution, but instead looking at his poetry for that decision. Regardless of where you stand on gay marriage or anything else, the Obergefell decision, just like Roe versus Wade, regardless of where you stand on the abortion issue, those two Supreme Court decisions were contrary to what the law was. You can even find a number of honest liberal law professors and judges who will say just that. We are derogating the Constitution of the United States, which, which means we're derogating the will of the people, which means we're making it up as we go. We don't have a foundation or a standard upon which we can depend, which means we don't have a country. They can do whatever they want to. That's dangerous. So anyway, thanks for your call. I see that I've got to go to a commercial, but we've got other people. Hold. Brian, hold on. We'll, we'll get to you. Everybody else, please hold. We'll get your calls. Open line Friday for the next half hour. Pete Kirsten out for Bob France on Always Right. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob Prance on The Answer. Good morning, Cleveland. Pete Kirsten out sitting in for Bob France. We have uh, another segment to go, and I want to get to as many callers as possible. If you can, if you can, please, please keep your comments short. If we can't get to everybody, I'll ask Bob on Tuesday during my normal appearance if you guys can call in, have an open line, so we can address all of your comments. Let's go to Brian in Cleveland. Brian, how you doing? Hey, it's a pleasure, Peter. Keep it uh, short. Uh... And years ago, when my boys were at the swimming hole and they were about to jump in with their buddies and girls were already in, I said, back off, let them have their time and back off. 
you know, so so why are these 21 or, or under in college, why are the adults in the area allowing these boys to jump in the water with their girls, with the girls? Yeah, I mean, this with is... With their girls. Yeah, right. It's, it doesn't it, make sense. It doesn't. It's a woke ideology. Many of them are too afraid to say anything different. We are in a strange and troubling time in America. Where but, we say can't... What? but say what? Well, afraid to do what? The, uh, a, a boy is next to a girl jumping in the water going for... In a meet, it doesn't. Why, why can't the girl back off? And, well, and they are afraid. Go? They are afraid of afraid doing of just what? that, what? of getting canceled. What, what is afraid of? Right. Here's what happens, Brian. I'll tell you what happens because I've seen it myself. The Ivy League, for example, University of Pennsylvania. That's where Leah Thomas was competing. The other female athletes were afraid not to compete because by boycotting, they think that they would be deprived of other opportunities. And, and they, well, at least one of the the females said that her coaches told her that they would be disciplined somehow. They're afraid. They're afraid of doing it because sanctions will be applied not just by their school, but by the NCAA and others and from places unknown that these individuals who are woke will hit them, try to cancel them. That's what they're afraid of. Brian, thanks so much for your call. I'm sorry for keeping it short, but we've got to get to others. TJ, TJ, how are you in Cleveland? Yeah, Pete, I got to commend you for what you said about giving money to the homeless when you work downtown. You know, when I worked downtown, I'd give money once in a while to these homeless people. And some of my workmates kind of chastised me saying, you know, they're just going to take your money and buy a bottle of wine with it. And, you know, I looked at him, I says, you know, do you people know what it's like to be homeless? I know what it was like to be homeless, Pete. In Vietnam, my bed on the ground was a poncho laying on the barren earth, and everything I owned was on my back. I could carry on my back. And if somebody was to offer me a bottle of wine once in a while just to ease my discomfort, I would have thought that was a great thing. But I commend you. Well, thanks very much, TJ, and thanks very much for your service. Again, I know I might be a chump for doing so. A lot of you will think so, but it's just I cannot. And all the homeless folks downtown, they know me. They see me when I'm walking down the street, and they pretty much line up. Hey, there's the chump. He's going to give us some money. I cannot not do it, and everybody downtown understands that. Uh, if somebody can give me a good reason, and I know a million of them, I know a million reasons why I shouldn't be giving them money. But this is my point. In the wealthiest country in the history of the world, First of all, we shouldn't be hand, having the the um, conditions for homelessness, whether it's cultural conditions or monetary conditions. That shouldn't happen in this greatest country in the history of the world. We should be ashamed of ourselves for that. And if we can't rectify the matter through our culture, our practice, our behavior, and through our tax dollars, then you know what? I'm reaching into my pocket. Sorry. You can chastise me all you want to for being a chump. I'm going to do it. John, let's go to John in Cleveland. John, how are you? I'm very fortunate. I'm not in a wheelchair in a nursing home. I'll be 88 in August. Please answer this question. I can understand the House and the Senate members asking for the Supreme Court nomination, asking for tell the truth, nothing but the truth. But when you have an expert opinion from Cato Institute or some other think tank, you know what they're going to do. That's not the truth. That's an opinion, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It is an opinion. And what, I, I didn't catch what you said about Cato Institute, uh, John. What did you say about no, them? I mean, any think tank, when they come, you know exactly what they're going to say, liberal points of view or the other point of view. It's not the truth. It's an opinion. So why do they rate it as a truth when you're swearing in? Well, they have. There's, there's always an agenda in Washington. That's the first thing you find out. And it's not just in Washington. But it's unfortunate that, hey, look, I, I'm not an expert at Washington, even though I play one on TV. I... I've spent a lot of time on the Civil Rights Commission. Um, I have been in Washington in appointed capacities by the president, 
and I've seen what's happened, and I tell you, I'm, I'm appalled. It, um, it, there's this group think that occurs in Washington. They think they're the experts. They think they're in charge. And the administrative state is far too large. Unelected individuals who are truly affecting outcomes in this country far more influential than senators, representatives, and in some cases, maybe even the President of the United States. It's been a privilege and a pleasure substituting for Bob France again, P. Kersenow, and all are always right. Hey, call back on Tuesday for those who were left on hold, and we'll try to talk about anything you want to. P. Kersenow, substituting for Bob France. God bless America. I wish I could caress, caress, caress Manic depression is a frustrating mess Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.